Greetings, listeners, domestic, international, and extraterrestrial. I'm Dave Reed. And I'm Kristen Riley. And this is The Cast Files. I am a nerd who has somehow never seen The X-Files. And I watched it when it originally aired. Today, we are... We are reporting on the real Betty and Barney Hill story. Ooh, sounds like you did some investigative journalism. I did. So, you may have heard of this story, and I will get into what you know about the story in a moment. Listeners, you may also be familiar with this story, whether or not you know of it as the Betty and Barney Hill story or as the first abduction story. You may have listened to other podcasts on this. I know I have. The thing is, they basically all say the same thing. But not us. Which is not what we are doing here. Ooh. Uh, One thing, listeners, I have done zero to prepare for this episode. This is all Kristen. I have no idea what she's going to say. And I'm trying to make that sound complimentary, not like, <laughs> not like I, her views do not reflect mine. <laughs> I don't know what she's going to say, so I've got my finger on the red button, the dump button. <laughs> so rather than regurgitate someone else's paraphrased story, I read some books. You did. The books that I read are The Interrupted Journey, Two Lost Hours Aboard a UFO, The Abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, that's the full title, by John G. Fuller. This is the first book about this. Okay. Do you know when it came out? It was published in 1966. I also read Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, 60th Anniversary Edition, (laughs) the true story of the world's first documented alien abduction by Kathleen Marden and Stanton T. Friedman. That was published in 2007, and I was just looking at these dates going, what was it the 60th anniversary of? Because the incident occurred in September of 61. (laughs) The first book was published in 66. So what is it the 60th anniversary of? I do not know. All right. And I also read, in addition to this, The Myth of Repressed Memory False Memories and Allegations of Sexual Abuse by Dr. Elizabeth Loftus and Catherine Ketchum, which was published in 1994. I include this because the Betty and Barney Hill story has a lot to do with repressed memory, memory regression. Regression hypnosis? Yes, a lot of stuff. So I read a book that isn't directly related to their story, but... Is directly related to their story? Yeah. It's not about them, but it's about certain things that they went through. Now, you don't have to answer this question, but which one of these books did you repeatedly have to put down going, (laughs) No. (laughs) It wasn't the the last one that I mentioned. It wasn't the real one? Okay. It wasn't the one written by a doctor. (laughs) And just put it that way. Okay. But in case you aren't familiar with the Betty and Barney Hill story or want a refresher, I will give you the shorthand from Wikipedia. Just very short. Most of the stuff doesn't come from Wikipedia. Okay. But I'll give you like the super brief part. Betty and Barney Hill were an American couple who claimed they were abducted by extraterrestrials in a rural portion of the state of New Hampshire from September 19th to the 20th, 1961. It was the first widely publicized report of an alien abduction in the United States. Their story was adapted into the best-selling 1966 book, The Interrupted Journey, 
and the 1975 television film, The UFO Incident. Oh, we should have watched that movie. Well. Dang it. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what you know, or do you want me to go into a little bit more background about The Hills? I'll tell you what I know. Okay. Because I think this is what most people are going to know. Betty and Barney Hill, interracial couple. Mm-hmm. I believe he was black, she was white. Yes. I forget what they did for a living. Were they professors? No, but no? I'll get into that. Okay. But they were driving driving down the backwoods of some place. Yes. That you may have already mentioned. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll get back into it. Okay. Uh, driving through the backwoods, because in the 50s, everything was backwoods. In, in, <laughs> the U.S. interstate system had not yet been invented. So they end up... Being abducted by aliens, quote unquote, losing a large portion of time, and about it that I remember. They, they were abducted by aliens, and that's what they said. Yep. And I think it must have been really, really stressful to be an interracial couple in the 1950s. And stress can do funny things to people. That will come up. Mm, interesting. <laughs> in fact, all of the white people mentioned in this book... Bring up how stressed out Barney was about the interracial couple. Interesting. And I will let you, I will tell you how Betty felt about it. Mm. In her own words. Oh, great. It's. I'm wondering if Barney was worried if at any moment in time, somebody might murder him for being married to a white woman. (laughs) When it was not legal in the United States yet. Comes up a lot. The white people don't think it's the problem. Oh, okay. I did cut out a lot of that because... We could have talked about it forever, about what the white people... Yeah, you saw. so it happened in 1961. Yes. Emmett Till was like less than a decade ago. We are not in a good place no. for white and black romance. No. All right. So, a little background. So, yes, your recollection and then also your additional opinions about it mm-hmm. do come up. There is more. Okay. The Hills lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Barney who passed in 1969, which is three years after the first book shows up. Yeah, that's okay. It was, I don't remember if I put it in here. It was a medical thing. He, it was a, it was health. I guess I, I guess I say that because we just talked about Emmett Till. He wasn't murdered and um, it wasn't the aliens. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess those are really the reasons I'm clarifying. Uh, He was employed by the United States Postal Service. While Betty was a social worker, they were both active in the local Unitarian congregation, which will become important later. Okay. The Hills were also members of the NAACP. They were community leaders, and Barney sat on the local board of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Oh, wow. While these details are important in their own ways, they are always used to support how, quote, upstanding and, quote, trustworthy the Hills were. They are not important to this story. They were an interracial couple. At a time when it was particularly uncommon in the United States, Barney was black and Betty was white. John Fuller spends an exceptional amount of time on this point throughout the book, The Interrupted Journey. And I mention that only so if you do go back to read it, you know. It was written in the 1966. Yeah. Uh, We were still one year away from their marriage being legal. So just beware if you go back. Um, It was definitely written in 1966, and it is written as if it was written in 1966. (laughs) So the encounter, the general story. I'm going to tell you the general story of how it unfolded in these books. And then I actually have the initial report 
of what happened. That's going to be super interesting. And then we can go into some other things. So the general story of the encounter, the Hills took a last minute multi-day road trip from their home to Niagara Falls up through Montreal and back home. Most of what they recall or what they recalled prior to hypnosis is pretty typical stuff. Long drives, worrying about where to stay that would allow the dog, Barney specifically worrying where to stay that would allow an interracial couple, stopping at diners, getting directions that you can't understand because they are in Montreal. Montreal is primarily French speaking and in some cases only French speaking. Mm -hmm. They did have an occasion where they couldn't understand each other and then getting off track and then getting back on track. Standard stuff when you're recalling a road trip. Especially an incredibly long road trip. Oh, you were missing some time in this incredibly long road trip? We'll get there. <laughs> okay. At some point, they decided they'd lost time in miles. Approximately two hours and 35 miles. During the very early hours of the morning of September 20th, 1961. The reason they were driving so late? They'd cut the trip short due to a forecast warning of a hurricane making landfall near their home, and they wanted to go home to prepare. So they pulled an all-nighter. Yes. And now they're missing some time. Yes. Okay. They don't specify in the interrupted journey which hurricane this was, but I looked it up and then I read about it in Captured because I was like, I can definitely find what hurricane this was. This would have been a Hurricane Esther. It did not end up hitting New Hampshire, but it was a Cat 5 at certain times. So it would make sense that they're out of town. Yeah, they want to get back. They want to get back to make sure that they can board up their house or prep in whatever ways they need to. Apparently, they didn't know how bad a Cat 5 would be. Well, the interrupted journey states hurricanes as, quote, an event that in previous years had uprooted trees and spilled high tension wires across the road, unquote. So obviously you want to get back. Yeah. That that sort of thing is something you want to get back and prepare for. Something that like just hit Florida, something you need to be out of town for. Yes. And they kind of gloss over this because this isn't about aliens. So Yeah. And but we just we just went through another hurricane. So (laughs) was it even a cat five when it hit I don't... I don't remember. Not I don't know. It didn't hit <clears throat> us, so that's why we're wishy-washy on the, the details, but that's why they're not focusing on this. Yes, there's a hurricane coming. They are like, oh, well, let's get back and do whatever we need to do to prep our house. Makes sense. It's also important because that's why they drove all night instead of stopping somewhere and then coming back the next day because they did have the time off. Mm-hmm. To drag it out a little bit more or to, you know, to to whatever vacation the way they wanted to vacation. But it was important to get home. Fuller delves into his fascination with their interracial relationship, relaying essentially that Betty didn't see color. (laughs) She is actually quoted as saying to a friend, quote, It doesn't have any more meaning to me than a person having blue eyes or brown eyes, unquote. You know what? 1961. Great. Good. Good job. In fact, this comes up from Fuller, Dr. Simon, and Betty herself throughout the retelling. Now, I'm not qualified to speak on behalf of anyone, really, but especially not a person of color in an interracial relationship now or in the 60s. What I can tell you is that these white folks are working overtime trying to convince us they aren't fascinated by skin color. Mm-hmm. Why do I mention this? Mainly because I feel Barney gets railroaded in some of these retellings. Oh. 
Surprising. And since he died in 1969, he was around for the initial event, discussions, hypnosis, and the interrupted journey. But he wasn't around for what this became. And I want to acknowledge that. Okay. So, during this late night drive on September 19th, 1961, Betty's interest in the sky was, quote, aroused by what she at first thought was a falling star until it suddenly came to a stop in the southwestern sky. As it inched its way upward, she thought she was taking in her first observation of a satellite, unquote. Oh. Yeah. Pretty interesting. This quote is from Captured and remains consistent throughout her reports before the outside influences began. Really begin. So she's saying, wow, I saw a satellite for the first time. That's what she thought it was at first. Up until somebody else says you saw an alien? Um, no, it does. It grows. Okay. From here in this, this nighttime. But what, why it caught her attention is because it was moving and then it stopped and she thought it was a satellite. Yeah, I don't think satellites move like that either, but you know. Well, I do want to mention that this is early satellites yeah. so seeing a satellite in the sky isn't like now you go and look outside and you're like there are eleven thousand satellites <laughs> in the sky everything's moving it's just all moving <laughs> the satellites are pretty new and they're fascinating to see oh, yeah. people are super fascinated with space right around this time oh yeah barney couldn't focus on the satellite because he was driving and focusing on the road so betty insists that he stop on the side of the road and look at it himself which he does but before that, Betty witnesses the object taking an, quote, unconventional erratic flight pattern, unquote. It travels across the face of the moon at one point. Okay. I don't know how big it is at this point. Yeah. Satellites can do that, though. I know that. Right. Because they would pass in between the Earth and the moon. Yeah. That becomes a big deal later. Okay. Barney sees the object. He's insistent that it's a plane at first. Which makes me believe that this is when they were telling... Okay, so one thing that they do in the books that I didn't relay here is they were describing the sizes of things, but they were describing it in ways like... It was the size of the eraser of a pencil when you hold a pencil out at arm's length. What? And I'm like, I don't know what that... <laughs> I mean, I guess I do know what that means, but also... What? <laughs> All right. So they were describing things like that. At this point, Barney decides, because it's flying in a way that a satellite wouldn't fly, he, he thinks it's a plane. Great. But then they witness two red lights on the wings or the sides that make him reconsider. One thing I, I didn't, I wanted to look specifically at the planes that were being tested, the military planes that were being tested at this time to see if I could figure out lighting patterns and stuff. But that was a lot more time than I had. I can tell you commercial planes have, one of their wings has red flashing light on it. Yes, one does. The other has green. Yes. And that's, this becomes a point of interest of a lot of people because Barney has watched planes for a while. Some of his backstories, that's one of his things that he likes to do. He just okay. likes looking at planes. And so the two red lights on the wings are odd because it should be a red light and a green light. Yeah. As opposed to a red light and a red light. There's a very simple explanation for this. Well, hold on to it. Okay. He continues down the road, stopping repeatedly to get out and look at the object through binoculars to walk the dog, etc. They stop a lot of times. We get no real indication of how long these stops lasted or how many there were. This is upsetting to me. They're on a long road trip and they keep stopping. Mm -hmm. They are not making good time. They aren't, no. We do know Barney was reluctant to believe it was a UFO at one point telling Betty to stop trying to make him believe it was a UFO. 
<laughs> That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> Note here, this detail comes up later and not in the initial reports, uh, which we're about to get to. After a while of this flying object, cat and mouse, so they feel like they're chasing it. Okay. They can see it for a while. They can't see it. It goes behind a mountain, but they are also driving in the mountains. I don't know if I mentioned that. They're driving through New Hampshire mountains. They're trying to keep an eye on it. So it's like a cat and mouse game. Stop, start, whatever. They're exhausted and they do very few things before turning in to catch up on sleep once they get home. So they they drive the rest of the way home. And then when they get home, there's a couple of things, a couple of details about what they do. But basically, it's we're home. And <laughs> hurricane we doesn't hit us. And now we want to go to bed. The hurricane's never mentioned again, <laughs> by the way. That's about the extent from the initial report from the Hills to the United States Air Force. That's right. The first report of their UFO encounter was reported to and recorded by the USAF at Peace Air Force Base in Air Force Form 112 number 100-1-61. Very interesting. When did they make their report? The next day. The next? Wow. So, from that report, on the night of 1920 September, between 20-0001 and 20-0100, which I looked up, is military time for midnight to 1 a.m. I'm familiar with military time, but not this way. The 20 threw me off. Mr. and Mrs. Hill were traveling south on Route 3 near Lincoln, New Hampshire, when they observed, through the windshield of their car, a strange object in the sky. They noticed it because of its shape and the intensity of its lighting as compared to the stars in the sky. The weather and sky were clear at the time, unquote. A quick note here. The reason they even started this report is Betty called her sister to discuss her sighting, as her sister Janet had seen a UFO a few years earlier. Oh. 1957 to be exact. Interesting. While talking to Janet, the former police chief of Newton, New Hampshire, arrived and strongly advised Janet to have Betty report to Peace Air Force Base. Apparently that was the latest protocol. These are all important details. Mm -hmm. If she hadn't been prompted, would Betty Hill have called the Air Force? Or would this have been a story that remained among friends and family, much like Janet's UFO sighting? Mm -hmm. But since she did call Peace Air Force Base and speak with Major Henderson of Project Blue Book... Hey! That's from the X-Files. We do have an initial report. Started the day they returned from the trip. A supplement to the initial report is also available. So I'm going to get into the report, the actual report, word for word, what's in the report, and... What is Project Blue Book? But I also want to note that when Janet saw the UFO in 1957, that was a story that she told. She told friends and family. It stayed a UFO sighting. The end. By the time Betty sees a UFO Mm -hmm. and is talking to her sister about it, because she's like, Barney doesn't want to talk about it, but I really want to talk about it. Who would you call? You'd call your sister, who's already done this, and you guys have already talked about it. There were protocols for reporting UFOs. The military already had set up Project Blue Book to take reports on UFO sightings. Yep. UFOs were everywhere. Yep. So how is this the first abduction? Did you hear in the initial report anything about abduction? I was going to mention that myself. No. They saw something in the initial report. And that was it. And Barney said, stop trying to get me to believe that it's a UFO. Yep. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Project Blue Book, which is fine because it is defunct now, 
Project Blue Book was the code name for the systematic study of unidentified flying objects by the United States Air Force from March 1952 to its termination on December 17, 1969. Project Blue Book had two goals, namely to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. All very reasonable at the time. Yep. By the time Project Blue Book ended, it had collected 12,618 UFO reports and concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomena, clouds, stars, etc. No other object has been misidentified as a flying saucer more often than the planet Venus. Or conventional aircraft. Makes sense. If everybody's talking about a UFO, you're going to think you saw a UFO. Yeah. According to the National Reconnaissance Office, a number of the reports could be explained by flights in the formerly secret reconnaissance planes U-2 and A-12. 701 reports were classified as unexplained, even after stringent analysis. The UFO reports were archived and are available under the Freedom of Information Act. But names and other personal information of the witnesses have been redacted. So now to the supplement from Major Henderson. I won't read each section here as they are covered below, which I will read, um, but these are the headings in the supplement. A, description of the object. B, description of course of object. C, manner of observation. D is missing. I don't know what it is. It's <laughs> just straight up missing. E, location and details. Of interest to me is C, manner of observation. We get ground visual binoculars used at times, and sighting made from inside auto while moving and stopped, <laughs> observed from within and outside auto. While they do state they observed the craft from outside the vehicle, this fails to note that they saw it up close, on the ground, or that they entered the craft, supporting my theory that they did see something, but the rest was built up after the actual incident. Uh, you had not stated your theory yet. I guess I did not. Now we know. That is my theory. They saw something, but were not abducted. Right. I think that's very reasonable. <laughs> All right. So remember the, the general story about how they were the first couple to be abducted by aliens? Yes. Here's what's in the report. Section E, location and details. The others are like, it had lights. It was this shape. It was cigar shape. It moved erratically. Things we've covered, but nothing about abduction. The most... Detailed section is section E, location and details. On the night of 1920, September, between the same times that I said before, the observers were traveling by car in a southerly direction on Route 3 south of Lincoln, New Hampshire, when they noticed a brightly lighted object ahead of their car at an angle of elevation of approximately 45 degrees. It appeared strange to them because of its shape and the intensity of its lights compared to the stars in the sky. Weather and sky were clear. They continued to observe the moving object from their moving car for a few minutes, then stopped. After stopping the car, they used binoculars at times. They report that the object was traveling north very fast. They report it changed directions rather abruptly and then headed south. Shortly thereafter, it stopped and hovered in the air. There was no sound evident at the time. Both observers used binoculars at this point. While hovering... Objects began to appear from the body of the object, which they describe as looking like wings, which made a V-shape when extended. The wings had red lights on the tips. At this point, they observed it to appear to swoop down in the general direction of their auto, 
The object continued to descend until it appeared to be only a matter of hundreds of feet above their car. At this point, they decided to get out of that area and fast. Mr. Hill was driving and Mrs. Hill watched the object by sticking her head out of the window. It departed in a generally northwesterly direction, but Mrs. Hill was prevented from observing its full departure by her position in the car. They report that while the object was above them after it had swooped down, they heard a series of short, loud buzzes, which they described as sounding like someone had dropped a tuning fork. They report that they could feel these buzzing sounds in their auto. No further visual observation was made of this object. They continued their trip, and when they arrived in the vicinity of Ashland, New Hampshire, about 30 miles from Lincoln, they again heard the buzzing sound of the object. However, they did not see it at this time. Mrs. Hill reported the flight pattern of the object to be erratic. It changed directions rapidly, and during its flight, it ascended and descended numerous times very rapidly. Its flight was described as jerky and not smooth. Mr. Hill is a civil service employee at the post office and doesn't possess any technical or scientific training. Neither does his wife. During a later conversation with Mr. Hill, he volunteered the observation that he did not originally intend to report the incident, but inasmuch as he and his wife did in fact see the occurrence, he decided to report it. He says that on looking back, he feels that the whole thing is incredible and he feels somewhat foolish. He just cannot believe that such a thing could or did happen. He says, on the other hand, that they both saw what they reported, and this fact gives it some degree of reality. Information contained herein was collected by means of telephone conversation between the observers and the preparing individual. The reliability of the observer cannot be judged, and while his apparent honesty and seriousness appears to be valid, it cannot be judged at this time. End supplement. So what do you think? Well, there seems to be a lot of extra information in that report you just read that wasn't in the thing you read before. Yes. That's uh, interesting. And you say this is the initial report, but it says later conversation. Yes, this is all within a few days or a week of the incident. So the initial report is basically A, B, C, D, E, not D, because D is missing. <laughs> Basic stuff. The supplement is a couple of conversations between Betty and Barney Hill and Major Henderson. He was following up to clarify details, and that's what's in the supplement. It is more robust. It is still within days, maybe a week or two of the initial sighting. There is enough time to start adding to the story, is, is what I'm thinking. But Did also, you hear anything about also, Yeah, also missing... <laughs> So missing is anything about an abduction. There are several additional reports included in the chapter, but I won't read them all. Do note that none of these reports include mention of an abduction or mention several events that are recalled during hypnosis, which occurs three years later. Good Lord. There is a closing report from the military as well, but the authors of Captured thoroughly include their thoughts throughout that one. Mainly, they believe that this was a cover-up by the military. Okay. So a standard thing that happened throughout both of the books is that there would be, for example, in Interrupted, there are some of the transcripts of the hypnosis tapes. Throughout the transcripts, the author has noted his opinion about what's happening. You can't read it without the noted opinion. Uh, okay. It's distracting and can be what I felt was a bit misleading. At times. Or at least leading. 
Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Same thing happened with Captured, which is why I didn't include the final report that the military closed this whole thing out on. Mm -hmm. Basically, what the military says is we researched it. We can't confirm or deny. We think it was probably... They, it was probably something in the sky. They mention it being one of those searchlights that you see outside of... Kroger. Yes. <laughs> like I was talking about the other day. Literally, no, because no one else has seen it outside of Kroger, but... <laughs> outside of arenas or whatever. But throughout Captured, throughout the that report, they insert, but this isn't correct, or how could it be this? This doesn't make any sense. And I understand having that impulse. It would have been... This is my, <laughs> this is my novice critique of that. I would have liked to read it in full and then read your response to the pieces. Yeah. As opposed to reading two sentences, your opinions, two sentences, your opinions. Yeah. Give us what they're saying and then tell us why that can't be true. Yes. I feel like that would have flowed nicer for how I wanted to read it. And that's how they did this initial, the initial report. If you find it, you can, it's. Some of it's super boring, which is why I didn't put it all in here. Because it is things like shape of object, cigar shape. And I'm like, okay, why is everything cigar shaped? When was oh, the last time you saw a cigar? I'll tell you exactly why everything's cigar shaped. Okay. Because they're just regular planes and they're so far away you can't see the wings. Right. I don't think I've ever described anything as cigar shape because cigars are not prolific in my life. <laughs> also. Also that. <laughs> all right. So, yeah. So in Capture, they believe that it was... Covered up by the military. Even if the military decided to cover up this sighting, there was no indication of an abduction at this point. They would not be covering up the abduction simply because it had not occurred to anyone that there had been an abduction by the time this report was concluded. Just, wow. Yeah. So, what about the abduction? What about the abduction, Kristen? At this point, within days of the event, which is what I started calling it, the Hills have spoken about... The event with Janet, their upstairs neighbors, some friends, Peace Air Force Base, and specifically Major Henderson with the Project Blue Book. So we know that they've spoken with at least this many people. Mm -hmm. And friends is an unknown number. <laughs> it did seem... Friends. That's like <laughs> one person, right? <sighs> That's how many friends most people have. I don't, I don't know. I mean, they were really... I, it doesn't matter. In all accounts, it sounds like Betty wanted to talk. Barney did not want to talk at this point. The reason he did speak to Peace Air Force Base is because, as he says, they were taking it seriously. And so he felt that he could say what he was thinking about or what he had seen. He did, he would not have made that initial call. Right. Betty made the initial call. And then... That's because some cop in some other town told her sister to tell her to do it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because that was protocol. Oh, by the time this book comes out, the whole reason the guy uh, is even in is even nearby is because there's been a rash of reports by the police to the military <laughs> of seeing UFOs. Oh wow! That's in 1966, so that's not what's happening right now. Okay, but people are reporting constantly, which is why Project Blue Book exists. Mm -hmm. So um, Project Blue Book exists to find out how many people have seen the U-2 bomber. Yes. <laughs> the U-2 spy plane. Yeah. Bomber. On September 23rd, so this is two days after, three days after the event, Betty, curious, since the military has taken an interest, which makes total sense to me, if I saw a weird thing and then somebody was like, tell the military about it, 
And then they were like, yes, tell us everything. I'd be like, what is happening? So she goes to the library because she wants to know more. She heads to Portsmouth Public Library where she checks out The Flying Saucer Conspiracy by Major Donald Kehoe. Okay. Can I make one prediction about what's in this book? Hmm? Alien abductions. No, because nobody's been abducted yet. Okay. All right. Sorry. But I... prediction, I guess. I do want to note that this is the early 60s. They've been told by... The police chief. They've been told by the United States Air Force. And now they are, Betty is reading, actually both of them end up reading this book written by Major, a Major from the Marine Corps. All of these people who hold stature believe that they have seen this and that UFOs are real and they are taking an interest. Remember that. I think it's very important. That people are taking an interest? That people... In heightened positions. Authority. Yes. Are taking an interest. So, who is Donald Kehoe? He was an American Marine Corps naval aviator, writer of many aviation articles and stories in a variety of leading publications, and manager of the promotional tours of aviation pioneers, specifically of Charles Lindbergh. Oh, shit. So, he was a white supremacist. And rich. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was a white supremacist. I'm just like, if he gets involved with the Hills, this is going to go poorly. In the 1950s, he became well-known as a UFO researcher, arguing that the U.S. government should conduct research in UFO matters and should release all of its UFO files. Jerome Clark writes that, quote, Kehoe was widely regarded as the leader in the field, unquote, of ufology in the 1950s and early to mid-1960s. So if you're going to read a book about UFOs and what's going on, you're going to go to the guy who is widely regarded as the leader. Kehoe co-founded the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Wow. NICAP. Yeah, that's Max's... Man, that's upsetting. Max, why'd you have to pick the one founded by... Do you think MUFON was not also founded by a white supremacist? Well, I mean, this guy's hanging out with Charles Lindbergh. He's like, he's not just a white supremacist. He's a white supremacist. So what is the Flying Saucer Conspiracy? Okay, not abductions, apparently. Because that's what I thought. In 1955, Kehoe wrote a book that pointedly accused elements of United States government of engaging in a conspiracy to cover up knowledge of flying saucers. Kehoe claims the existence of a silence group of orchestrating this conspiracy. So I think Chris Carter also read this book. Yeah. (laughs) This does sound a lot like Fox Mulder or Renard Muldrake. (laughs) Historian of folklore, which, why did I know that was a job? (laughs) Curtis Peebles argues, quote, The flying saucer conspiracy marked a shift in Kehoe's belief system. No longer were flying saucers the central theme. That now belongs to the silence group and its cover-up. For the next two decades, Kehoe's beliefs about this would dominate the flying saucer myth, unquote. The book features claims of a possible discovery of an, quote, orbiting space base, unquote, or a, quote, moon base, knowledge of which might trigger a general panic. I mean, I'm sorry, a public panic. The flying saucer conspiracy also incorporated legends of the Bermuda Triangle disappearances, Kehoe sensationalized claims ultimately stemming from optical illusions of unusual structures on the moon. 
After reading his book, Betty wrote to Kehoe on September 26, 1961. I read her letter to Kehoe. In it, she mentions that Barney was able to see inside a lighted window on the craft, and he was able to, quote, see many figures scurrying about as though they were making some hurried type of preparation. One figure was observing us from the windows. From the distance, this was seen. The figures appeared to be about the size of a pencil, and it and seemed to be dressed in some type of shiny black uniform, unquote. Hey, that's new. At this point in the event, Barney became hysterical, laughing and repeating, quote, that they were going to capture us, unquote. <sighs> yes, this is new. This is six days after the incident. This is after the initial discussions with Project Blue Book. I think the investigation is still open at this point, but they are no longer frequently speaking with the Hills. Mm -hmm. And now Betty has read the Flying Saucer Conspiracy and is writing to Major Kehoe, who is a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Um, this is also the first time that we hear that Barney has seen people inside. Or that there were windows. Yes, also that. <laughs> this is the first time that we've heard that either of them saw anything more than lights in the sky. Yeah. She does mention the report made to Peace Air Force Base and that they left out the sighting of humanoids and Barney's hysteria. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. Because it's in a report? Because it didn't happen. She mentions that they were looking for, quote, any clue that might be helpful, unquote, to Barney in, quote, recalling whatever it was he saw that caused him to panic, unquote. Oh, I forgot to mention, Betty did not see these creatures at this point. So she wants there to be creatures involved in the story, but she doesn't want to implicate herself as having seen them. She sees them later. Okay, cool. Under hypnosis, she is the one telling all of the details. Oh, she's the one telling all the details now. It is true. That is very important. Additionally, his mind was completely blacked out at this point. Barney's. This is what she's telling Major Kehoe in this <sighs> note. Every attempt to recall leaves him very frightened. So what was happening, from the different accounts that I read, what was happening is apparently there were people that Barney saw. He saw people. He saw them in what looked like German military uniforms. <laughs> and at some point he heard them or it was communicated to him that they were going to capture them. So he... Runs back to the car, throws the binoculars into the car, and drives away, saying, they're going to capture us. He's upset. Betty didn't see any people. Like I said, that changes as we get further. That changes by 1990, by 1965, 64, by 1964 when they do the hypnosis. It isn't happening now. She hasn't, she's even told Major Kehoe that only Barney saw it. Oh, and what they were trying to do is when this came out, they were trying to talk to Barney about his moment of panic that night. And anytime they try to talk to him about it, he gets upset. So if he did get upset that night, basically everybody coming around now and being like, hey, tell us why you're upset is making him upset. Okay. We're getting more and more fantastic as the days and research and interest by powerful men pour in, but still no mention of abduction. She also mentions considering hypnosis as they've discovered their memory is hazy at points in the story. I'm not a psychiatrist, and I haven't met the Hills. I also hate when people diagnose people for content. It's all bullshit, so stop it. 
What I would like to include are a couple of points that they noted in both books. Barney was a war veteran who had been injured in combat. He was not yet 40 at this point. Mm -hmm. He had a full set of dentures as a result of his war injuries. So there's probably some stress there. His face basically got blowed up with a grenade, and now he has a full set of dentures. That's how he got out of the military. Okay. While at a lake in Philadelphia with his boys, minus Betty, this was before Betty, a military plane harassed them and sped off with what they're calling encaptured as a sonic boom. So he has already had an incident where a military plane has buzzed them a bunch of times while they were in a lake, he and his boys, and then it sped off. By his boys, you mean his friends? No, his his actual children. Okay. So, okay, so Barney and Betty, this is their second, both of their second marriages. Okay. Barney has children. They are in Philadelphia with his first wife. That has been causing a lot of stress. Okay. In addition to everything else that's happening. Gotcha. And so lastly, my last point is Barney was under a lot of stress in his daily life. One, he missed his kids. He's in New Hampshire. His kids are in Philadelphia. I actually have no idea how far that is, but it's not close. <laughs> it's not like weekend trips, kind of close. And not in the 50s. There's no interstates. Barney also was working about an, oh gosh, what was it? He was working far away the night shift. So he had something like a three-hour drive round trip each day, mm -hmm. which is also stressful. And he's in this interracial relationship with a woman who doesn't see color. <laughs> I, you know, so maybe something stressful happened and he was stressed out about it. Seems reasonable. It doesn't appear that Kehoe responded at this point, instead passing the information along to Walter Webb, a Boston astronomer and NICAP member, who eventually wrote, this is the title, A Dramatic UFO Encounter in the White Mountains, New Hampshire. Is that a book or a pamphlet? It's a paper. Paper. I don't know about you. But so far, the story doesn't hold enough water or interest to write a 37-page document on. No. Fortunately for everyone with skin in the game, Betty's nightmares begin, and Walter Webb would sit down with the Hills for a six-hour interview soon. So where are we at? By October 21st, 1961, Barney reported to NICAP investigator Walter Webb that the beings were somehow not human. So that is the first time that we see... Barney has said something. Yes. All right. We still don't have an abduction. No. It's we October. Are, we are through a good chunk of everything. In October is when Walter Webb sits down with the Hills. He um, interviews them for six hours straight. He comes back and interviews them again. And then he brings some other people who the Hills mistake as investigators, but they are actually IBM workers who are trying to find out more about what I assume to be military technology <laughs> that they are trying to figure out how they can use in some of their work because some of the questions that they ask. So who has influenced this story? We don't have an abduction yet. No, it's October. Yeah, it's a, it's a full month later. Nobody's been abducted. So we have Betty and Barney Hill, obviously, are influencing the story. We have Janet, Betty's sister. We have the former police chief of Newton, New Hampshire. Who I blame entirely for this. We have the Peace Air Force Base, specifically Major Henderson of Project Blue Book. There were some other people they talked to. Who seemed like they just took the story down and did almost nothing with it. That's what it sounds like, yeah. yeah. But I think the fact that Major Henderson called them back and asked for clarifying 
questions had the implication that the Air Force was interested in their story. Mm. I think that's how it is. it was being taken. As opposed to, I got to figure out, I got to fill out this fucking report. <laughs> yeah, I'm letting the Air Force off the hook for this right now, anyway. Because they got a report, they have to report it. That seems like what they are doing. We also have Major Kehoe. We have Walter Webb. We have the IBM guys, whose names I forgot to write down. By the time this becomes an actual story of abduction and gets more and more intense, we have Admiral Herbert Bain Knowles. That's a new name. It is. Because he comes in much later. Okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and then you can tell me if you want me to go further into it in a minute. So I'm still going down the list of people who are impacting this story. We like, also... But like by the end of the story? Yes. Okay. The abduction story. By the time this becomes an abduction story, these are all of these people are involved. Admiral Herbert Bain Knowles, top brass from the Navy. Like an admiral? <laughs> that seems like top brass. I guess. Me. We also have top brass from Washington. That's what they're called. Okay. So basically a lot of people are interested in this. Uh, we have police in the area that were heavily reporting UFO sightings at the time that the original book comes out. And they were being taken seriously, of okay, course. Okay, so five years later. Yes. Okay. We have the FBI. We also have the CIA. We have the Hills Pastor. Oh, good. All right. Let's stop here for the moment, because as of right now, we have the story. Yeah. Everything else comes together later. All right. Well, I think this is a good place to stop and do a part two. I think so. Okay. I have to tell you that there is another woman who communicated with aliens. Oh, that's going to be fun. So that's a good tease. Yeah. For part two, find out about the alien whisperer. <laughs> yes. The Cast Files is produced by Kristen Riley and Dave Reed. Edited by Dave Reed. You can find us on Twitter at Cast Files. You can find me on Twitter at Dave Reed. That's D-A-I-V-E-R-E-E-D. You can email us at thecastfiles. That's the with two E's at gmail.com. If you could please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and tell us that we are doing phenomenal things. Artistic, wonderful things. We are raising the bar on podcasting. We would love you forever for that. We have a Tee Public store. You can go buy t-shirts and stuff there. Music by Hal Six. Logo by Atuka Art. That's O-O-K-A-A-R-T. 